You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I don't have my script up, so um, what's my next line? Welcome to episode 92 of the Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. In this episode, we are joined by Me- Megan Kummerich, who is a writer and creative partner for the Middle East, North Africa, and Mediterranean Archaeology Publication Group, and promotional and academic partner for the Save Cultural Heritage Group. Megan, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you doing this evening? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm doing fairly well. My cat was very upset that I kicked her out of the room today, but she'll forgive me eventually. Cats are easy like that. They're easy, easy to forgive. So right now you're recording from somewhere in England, correct? Where are you based? So I'm in Southwest London. So currently it's not even five o'clock and the sun's going down and I am very sad about it. Yeah, I can see your window through your uh, video and it looks rather depressing and dark and cold outside. And I'm so sorry. It's it's 930 in the morning here in Colorado. So I have a bright day ahead of me. Also, this is David, not Connor. Actually, I can be Connor if you guys need me to. When I was in London, I was like, I've always been told it rains and it's like dark and dreary. And I thought that was like just an American thing to make yeah. us sound better. It was actually dark and dreary the entire time I was there. So checks out. But it was a lovely city. I thought it was fun. Yeah. I mean, I really like it. I come from Arizona, which is one of the sunniest states you could ever find yourself in. So coming here, I think the biggest culture shock is just no sun and it's very wet all the time. Yeah. Very different Uh, than Arizona, which is just (laughs) super sunny and abundance of heat and like zero precipitation all year round. Yeah. Uh, so you said you grew up in Arizona, or you're from Arizona. Is that where you like spent most of your childhood? Or Yeah, so born and raised in Mesa, Arizona, and Gilbert, Arizona. Technically, it's Higley, but Higley doesn't exist anymore. A whole post office debacle, if you ever want to know. But yeah, I grew up there, born and raised, and I even got my undergraduate degree from Northern Arizona University, which it actually snows there, so it's not all hot and sunny, but there was still sun, yeah. even when it snowed. That's up in... Um not Flagstaff. It is Flagstaff. Yeah. Is it Flagstaff? Okay. It's the only place I know that snows there. So (laughs) how do you have a non Arizona accent? Oh my God. That's a great question. So my father is Mexican American and my mom's side of the family is Eastern European. Now they, they've assimilated very well. They sound very American, but growing up, I started studying a lot of different languages and it morphed my accent from a very early age. And it doesn't help that I used to be an opera singer. So I was yeah. properly trained with all the um, the vowel sounds. And then I moved here and it just hasn't gone back since. Wow. That is unique and really cool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> opera singer. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that real quick before we dive into it? Yeah, 100%. Even though I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist at a young age, I found myself doing things as like a competitive dancer. I was an opera singer, so I sang for a state of Arizona a few times. And then I was also in chemistry called the physics club. I just kept bouncing around to different activities until I landed on having to go to university and settling down as an archaeologist. Wow. You are classically trained. That is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So kind of like you talking, going back to uh, kind of your experiences growing up, like what were your first experiences in anthropology or archaeology in Arizona? Like were you a dinosaur kid, history buff or nature nerd? Um, so I was a dinosaur kid, but it's not exactly a dinosaur kid. So I grew up watching Jurassic Park as one does. And my first instinct wasn't, oh my gosh, dinosaurs are so cool. It was mom, you can dig up old things in the ground. And she just looked at me like, yes, you can dig up old things. And I went, that's what I want to do. So she turned half of our backyard into a sand pit and would bury my toys in the sand in Arizona summers. And I would just excavate meticulously to try to find them, then clean them and display them. And my mom was like, at this point, I kind of wish you were a dinosaur kid, because at least we'd have like cool things to bury. But I'm just burying Barbie dolls and Legos. And it's not as fun. (laughs) I think David, didn't you I, used to like wrap up yeah. G.I. Joe's in toilet paper and bury him in the backyard? <laughs> the audience knows this. I tell it every time someone says this, but it's so funny that we all do the same thing. But I would bury G.I. Joe's or it's actually Max Steel because it was like the off brand and I'd bury them. And then I wanted to like, take it to the next level as like an artistic thing. And I wrapped them in toilet paper and then I would like dig them up seven weeks later. And I was like, look, it's a mummy. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to let it age in the ground a bit. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a good year or a good month, I would say, to age it. Uh, 
Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, Jurassic Park kid. I think we're all, yeah. we're all that. <laughs> what one was your favorite? Um, so I love the first one, uh, probably because that's obviously the first one I, I watched. And then I'm a sucker mm. for the third one as well. I just thought the cinematography was great in the third one. And I really liked just the thrill of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, the, you get intimate or not intimate with the Raptors, but like you, you learn a lot more about the Raptor culture and stuff. I thought that was really yeah. cool. I used um, to love the third one until, I mean, I know this is like extremely recent within like the past five years where they figured out like the true, yeah. like anatomy of Spinosaurus aegypticus. And it's like not bipedal. And it was probably just a very large crocodilian. So I just can't watch it the same. I'm like, I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> the only way I can watch them now and try to like put my scientific brain on the back burner is knowing, okay, they've mixed DNA with frogs and things. So technically they, you know, these aren't what the dinosaurs would look like. They fully acknowledge this. It's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved it. Um, yeah. But I, I guess getting back to the anthropology. So you liked ancient stuff. Your parents said, or, you know, had that conversation and then you went to, was your first school Northern Arizona? Yes. What was that like? And like, what'd you do for your field school? So I, originally I was trying to figure out what university to go to. And obviously I'm an Egyptologist now. So the question was, mm-hmm. do I go straight into that, which probably would have been smarter in the long run, because uh, that's really difficult to do. Or do I want to go the more general archaeology, anthropology route? And I decided I wanted to do anthropology first to get a great foundation, more holistic approach. And I found Northern Arizona University and I was like, yes, that's where I want to go. Um, So when I got there, I ended up specializing in Mesoamerica. And my first field school was actually in Peru. So I worked in a giant sand dune, which is basically like being in Arizona and Egypt at the same time. So that actually worked out pretty well for me. Um, And it was great. We excavated a ceremonial burial site. And what it was, was you had a cemetery off to one side. And you had a mortuary temple in another, and they ceremoniously buried that. So we're actually digging up what ancient people already buried for us. And that was very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in, in terms of that, that sand pit in Peru, was that on the Peruvian coast? Uh, so it was right outside of Nazca. So yeah, I got to hang out the Nazca lines and everything, and then go to a sand dune, just about an hour drive from the main collection of uh, petroglyphs, which is really nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you see any planes or spaceships land on the lines? No, unfortunately. I really tried. You know, I, I even tried drinking yeah. a lot of Pisco, got really drunk, hoping maybe, but no, nothing. <laughs> okay. I respect that answer. Um, so when, yeah. you, when you started at uh, in, in Flagstaff, were you originally an anthropology major or did you start somewhere else and then transfer? So you started as anthro. Yes, I started as an anthropologist and I emphasized in archaeology and that was like from the get-go, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then it was just a matter of finding what specialty I wanted to do within anthropology. So that's why I went to Peru. Um, But then we had a man from Belize, Dr. Jaime Alwe, who's extraordinary. Uh, He brought his Mayan field school to Northern Arizona. And I never looked back since. I I started doing Mayan archaeology from there. I went from, yeah, going from Inca to Maya and then did a more holistic approach to that. But no, I 100% always wanted to do anthropology so that I could do linguistics, I could do archaeology, I could do bioforensics and kind of get a more, I don't know, like I keep saying holistic, but like get that whole entire picture of what it means to be human. And I even did at one point a flint napping. So I got to throw an, um, an atlatl, which is a really cool throwing spear in a blazer in high heels in the middle of a field, just because it was my lunch break and I wanted to test out what I made. <laughs> we need to hang out. Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so you did two field schools in undergrad. You, you did I one did. in for Peru and then you're like you know what that was awesome I'm gonna go to the jungle next in Belize (laughs) yeah and it was great because they said like okay you already have a field school under your belt so you can actually help us do a a supervision for two different sites so I got to supervise my own little team while still being within like that field school realm so I got to help the baby archaeologists learn how to set up a unit but then I also got to go off and excavate temples tombs uh, pyramids and then I even helped uh, collect carbon data from a cave. So we went spelunking, got to do that to look at climate change and human interactions with cave sites. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't top that. I don't think any guests can really top that, that we've had. Congrats. Thanks. You get the award. <laughs> so one thing that impressed me about your CV is that you 
just have your master's. I don't think you're, you're in your PhD yet, but, um, or not yet, maybe you don't want one, but one thing I, okay. I love to promote is like, we're always pressured to get our PhDs or like, you know, go on to be a tenure track, but like you just have your master's and you're killing it. So like, thank like, you. Yeah, that always, yeah. It just impresses me. And you have this like huge background in doing this stuff, like even as an undergrad and yeah. whatnot. So I, I I was, yeah. Yeah, was going to say, like, I've been very fortunate in that regard. And like you say, we have that pressure to get a PhD. And the only reason I really want one is just because I want one. I, I really don't feel like it's needed. Yeah, I don't think it's needed in the 21st century with how much we, we can do and want to do. The only way it really comes down to a necessity is at least in Egyptology. It's very hard to get permits as a foreign excavator. So having a PhD mm. does help. And because Egyptology is still very much rooted in classicism, it kind of you're more right. taken seriously with the PhD. So right now, me and a bunch of other colleagues are trying to break down that barrier. So I'm no no rush to get the PhD. I am very happy with what I can do, and I think yeah, we should be promoting people to get at least a master's and hang out and enjoy learning versus feeling like it's a pressured thing. Chris, make that the soundbite for the episode. <laughs> that was that was perfect. And segueing from that, uh, I guess I was going to ask you what led you to choose your or where you went to grad school and whatnot. Yeah, awesome answer. Um, so the the Belizean professor that I mentioned, Dr. Jaime Alway, he got his PhD at University College London. And I had talked to him about what I wanted to do as an Egyptologist because at the end of the day, it's where I wanted to like go. It's what I wanted to find myself doing. And he suggested look at University College London. So I did. And right off the bat, I told them I'm interested in ancient graffiti. I studied ancient graffiti in the Americas and I compared it to modern Native American graffiti. And like, I love just seeing how graffiti can transition through time. And UCL told me, go to Oxford. There is a professor there, Dr. Frude. She's amazing. You should, you know, reach out. So I did. And unfortunately, she had a medical condition that was not like allowing her to accept students. I still got the interview, but at the end of the day, didn't work out. But at the same time, I was also talking to University of Liverpool and Liverpool said, no, Oxford is great. That's where you should go. But depending on how that works out for you, let us know. And then we'll start like the interview process and everything. And I was like, OK, I woke up. I got the rejection letter from Oxford. I was devastated. And then the next day, I automatically got so an sorry. acceptance letter from Liverpool. And I went, well, I guess I'm going to Liverpool. They didn't even give me a chance to interview. They were just like, no, take her. Oxford's not going to have her. <laughs> and I didn't look back. <laughs> You know, a rejection letter from Oxford's not as bad as like a rejection offer from University of Florida, Ohio or something ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you that's know, point, it's like Oxford. I mean, that's 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 not too bad. Like that's that's all right. But yeah. so you ended up going to Liverpool and at Liverpool, because we've had a number of English trained archaeologists on at this point. What was your research on? And and did did a thesis come out of it, like a publication? It's unfortunately not a publication, mostly because University of Liverpool, they never promoted publishing, like publishing your work as a master's student. They only pushed that for PhD students, which is another issue I have with British educational systems, but that's a topic for another day. Um, but basically, yeah. like it wasn't, it wasn't fostered, it wasn't supported. So for me, my thesis grew and died in university. Um, but my research was looking at Theban temple graffiti. So if you know, like the temple of Luxor, really big, mm -hmm. they just opened up the mortuary path for that. It was like a big ceremony in Egypt. Um, but cool. I look at graffiti there and everyone asks, oh, is that the graffiti like where tourists do graffiti? Or, oh, is it just like crude images? And then I show them the graffiti and they're full on images of gods and, and uh, full on written inscriptions. And my favorite from my thesis, because I was looking at how graffiti can communicate without having to necessarily know everything about the culture. It's just all communicating either, yes, this is a god or yes, this is my power structure. But my favorite mm. one, which demonstrates this perfectly, is there's a graffiti, a graffito of a god. And he has a very large phallus. And it cracked me up when I found it because it's beautifully done. Not just the phallus, the whole thing. Um, and it has an inscription. <laughs> and it has an inscription. And the inscription basically reads that this priest had fixed up the graffiti, that he preserved it. And he's so great for preserving this heritage. And then you actually do analysis on the graffiti, and he just enlarged the phallus. And that's what he thought was his greatest accomplishment. <laughs> and honestly, humans haven't changed. That 
is awesome and hilarious and yeah. really intriguing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and it, uh, well, I guess one aside, and I have another question. Uh, I was told that by my archaeology professors in college that like there are far more phalluses like in the ancient world than like most textbooks want to show. And I did some research on that and it is not a lie. Like (laughs) they're all over, um, not to stay on the phallus thing, but in terms of like graffiti, do you think graffiti is like innate or like it's like, it's not an option. Like it just humans have to do it. Yeah. I would say that graffiti is a byproduct of us wanting to impose ourselves on a landscape. And you tend to find it on landscapes where humans don't feel that they have agency. So when I studied Mesoamerican graffiti, it was the Maya coming back to these temples and pyramids that their ancestors lived in. And they wanted to reconnect and replace themselves in the landscape. So they started mimicking things that they saw. So they were writing down glyphs that they could not understand. But they were doing it to show presence in their ancestry and their history. If you go to modern graffiti, obviously we say, oh, that's like a restricted area or that's somewhere where the public generally can't go or, oh, I'm just told I can't do certain things here. And we start to impose our presence further by writing our names or saying that we've been here just to show that even though there might be policies or something in place that restrict our access, we're going to overcome those and show that we're human, we're allowed to be here, and this is my marker for it. That's also a great soundbite. The like cave art and stuff like that and like hand sprays and all that ancient art. Like, do you think that also too is the same thing? Like you yeah. like imposing yourself on the landscape, but also does it relate to places they don't have agency kind of thing? That's interesting. Yeah. So I would say in forms of maybe not feeling they have agency, it doesn't necessarily have to come from a public policy figure. Obviously, if you look at cave graffiti of handprints and things, it's more so showing that you have agency to be either either coexisting with or being a part of your landscape. So you have that agency to transform the world around you and place yourself within it. So by putting your hand on a wall, not only are you showing that, yes, you were there, but that you have the ability to transform that and exist within it. And you're not separate from that conversation of, is this a cave? And am I a human? It's, we are one and the same. We are part of the same story. Whoa. Okay. That's it for me. That's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we'll be right back with Megan Cummerick after these messages. And welcome back to episode 92 of Life Ruins Podcast. We're here with Megan Cummerick, and we are going to continue our discussion on Egyptology because Megan is an Egyptologist. So what was that transition like going from New World monumentality and excavations in Peru and Belize to then focus to, to changing because you, you wanted to be an Egyptologist. That was kind of the goal, right? So yeah. what helps you with that transition of going to Egyptology? That's a great question. I don't think anything could ever prepare you for switching careers in whatever it is that you do. But I, some of the things that might have eased the transition a bit was just being able to have excavated so many various things and have such a wide range of information that I have from other cultures so that when I ended up in Egypt, I could be like, okay, I know how to excavate temples. Let me put me in that temple. I can excavate that. Oh, I know how to excavate mud bricks and housing. Put me in that. I could do that. Oh, you need me to identify ceramics. Well, I have two different cultures that do ceramics completely different depending on the time frame. So I know a wide range of that. So I could probably help you with that as well. And it all came down to the fact that the place I went to to work in Egypt, they never accepted anyone that wasn't already in a graduate program. And at that time, I had just finished my bachelor's and I hadn't yet started my master's. But they said, no, no, just come. We have faith in you. And by the end of it, they were like, yeah, we're going to have to invite you back every season because that was incredible. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to tell my professors at at, uh, NAU that because they'll be very proud. Good for you. Yeah. Excellent. So what was uh, that field work like? Because you worked at a place called Qom El... I can see it if you yeah, want. Yeah, please do. Um, so it's Qom Al Ahmar Qom Wasit. I speak Arabic, so surprise. Um, wow. And basically, it is northeast of the city of Alexandria. So it's in the Delta. And it's not as deserty as you'd expect. There is farmland. It is grassy and wet. That's why you get a lot of mud brick structures. But that excavation... 
it was it was incredible. It's basically we think it might be a lost city of sorts, but I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. But it's like um, Ptolemy had written in his accounts of a city that used to exist, and we're hoping that this is the city because we have on the surface layer we have one of the largest bathhouses that has ever been found in Egypt, and then lower down you have more Hellenistic and gosh, what is it, late dynasty. Egyptian houses as well. So it goes everywhere from 400 BCE to just before uh, Cleopatra and things like that. I don't know much about Egyptology. Like I just in general, there's pyramids. And then like a couple thousand years later, there's Cleopatra. Yeah. And everything in between for me is a, is a bit fuzzy because the history, the, the I guess like how much we know about Egyptian history is so vast in comparison to other other places due to the written documents. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at Cleopatra, she lived closer to our time than she did to the Great Pyramids. So yeah. even for her, she was the only person in the Ptolemy dynasty to actually retain holding the ancient Egyptian language that she wanted to speak it. Really? Like everyone else at that time was just like, no one speaks ancient Egyptian anymore. We don't really, can't really read the hieroglyphs. And she just went, nope, I've kept up all my studies. I can do these things. So she was definitely more of a figure than people realize. And yet she was still so far removed from the culture she represents. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. So uh, I guess with Ptolemy and like the Macedonians like moving into there, it was making me think. So in Jerusalem, it kind of like blew when I was visiting there blew my mind like looking around at like the tells like you got like ottoman stuff and then like roman stuff and then great and then it just keeps going down like that was wild to me so in egypt it's like more than that because you have like so many kingdoms there i didn't even think about that that's got to be a mess it is uh, thousands of in that layout but basically thousands of different historical layers that you have to go through and the interesting thing is people don't realize that egypt was conquered multiple times by various cultures since its beginning. Like everyone. Uh, but the yeah. <laughs> one thing was with Egypt is everyone that conquered fell in love with Egypt and they retained the religions and the arts and the historical dress to the point where you can even see when the Romans did conquer and invade, they started making mummies that kind of resembled ancient Egyptian mummies and they were doing mummy portraits to kind of put their own little mark on it. But Egypt, the only reason we don't think of it as such a, like a, it's vastly changing, super conquered places because people loved it so much. And I guess nothing has changed in that regard either. We still love it and we still kind of want to emulate it. Yeah, I think people perceive of Egypt as kind of like this, like it developed in a vacuum, like it's always been Egypt. It's been Egypt every time. And it's, and as you were talking about, it has like a rich history of continuous episodes of cultural transition, cultural revolution. Like it didn't just stay stagnant from like 6000 BCE up until like, you know, today that there it like any other culture, it experienced fluctuations in material culture and ideologies and, and whatnot. So it was like really cool to hear you hear you talk about that. And so when you were working there, were you working under Egyptian Egyptologists? Do Egyptian archaeologists working in Egypt call themselves? Egyptologists or just archaeologists? Uh, yeah, okay. Whoa, there's like a lot to unpack on that one because Egyptology alone, um, I'll start with that. Basically, we're having a discussion currently in Egyptology of what permits someone to call themselves an Egyptologist. And modern academics are saying if you study ancient Egypt, you can be an Egyptologist. You don't need to have a graduate degree. So I think there are a lot of Egyptians that do work on projects that would consider themselves Egyptologists or at the very least archaeologists. And the biggest thing with Egyptian excavations is no matter if you're working with a Egyptian university or working with the head person being of Egyptian descent, you always are also working with workmen called kuftis. And kuftis is a very honorable position for ancient Egyptians. They are basically raised as a kufti from birth because their father was a kufti. And the kufti job title basically says that they will be hired on to work at sites and they will lead the team of excavators that aren't the researchers but they have they'll employ the locals they get everybody together and they help with the excavations and so it's interesting to see how dynamic an Egyptologist really can be because you have the academics who are the Egyptologists but then you have the local kuftis and the local workmen who would, I would say, consider themselves researchers in Egyptology. So 100%, I think, I think they're Egyptologists. 
That's really interesting. Uh, Carlton, like with working with indigenous tribes here and stuff like that, like, like we have tribal like leaders and members come work on sites here. Cause you know, it's their land and their history. I did not think about that in Egypt. Like there's probably direct descendants of, wow. Yeah. And I think, did Raven talk about Kuftis? I've heard that word before. Maybe. I don't know. She may have. It's been a long time since episode seven. Maria, maybe. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's been a nice honor, I guess, to work with the locals because I did it in Belize as well, except the difference was that the locals there actually were permitted three months time off from their work in order to actually work with us on excavations. So it was like this big community event where in Egypt, it's more of your job. Your job is an excavator. It's, it's cool to see how different areas and different cultures involve themselves in the excavations of their own history to various degrees. And I like yeah. that. I think the there were or I mean, I knew there were Chinese students that worked with us in Wyoming on a field project uh and they were like one shocked at how hard working Americans are like we we're just out in the desert like scorching ourselves dying of thirst but loving it but they were saying that they have like workers that do all that for them and they just kind of stand and like watch and direct it and they were like well these people are animals <laughs> like just like <laughs> all of us just out frying ourselves didn't they ask where are the peasants like where are the excavators yeah Yeah, they like said something i guess it didn't translate like correctly they probably meant something a little more like you know lighter but that's what they basically what they said where Um, are my plebs yeah uh yeah interesting like the rest of the world has that um yeah i think thought he was in jail because he had to (laughs) dig sand eat oatmeal i heard the stories of this and it always cracks me up it is yeah. a thing that you see, especially in classical studies, is we do have excavators that work alongside you. So obviously my field schools in Peru, I had no help. That was just me. In Belize, uh, I did most of the work myself, but we had some workmen who were also taking the plaster from the excavations we were doing and then using them to make new bricks to form new temples, like preserve the temples we're excavating. So that was like nice. Sometimes they'd help me carry something. Um, yeah. But then Egypt, you have the full-on workforce, and I have my supervisor just sitting there, drawing up something, doing some notes, and then we'll look at me and be like, "Okay, now go help them." And I'm like, "Okay, I'll go go lift this and excavate this." And I, there were so many times I had to tell the excavators to be like, "Just please leave me alone. I want to dig my little circle. I'm okay." Yeah, man, Egyptology sounds fun. Like, well, I think everyone wanted to do that as a kid. Like, my dad last night was watching a documentary. I don't think it was Zahi, but something and like everyone's just fascinated especially like middle-aged old men like love egypt um but yeah he like it's just we're all fascinated by it but um i guess the next thing we were going to ask you is like uh where are you hoping to get a phd or like what would you like to do with that but i also we still have eight minutes in this segment are you able to just nerd out about egypt like for a bit because like i don't we don't get too many egyptologists yeah. yeah, excavating in Egypt is definitely on my archaeology bucket list. Like I have yeah. a couple places where I'd love to work at least just once. Well, the nice thing is if you do work in Egypt as an excavator or you just like work with a team, you actually get an antiquities pass, which allows you to go and see sites either for free or at a discount. So I 100% took advantage of that and went from Alexandria to see different sites there all the way to the pyramids, got a walk in that. And I was like, oh gosh, this is incredible. But yeah, um, working in Egypt is definitely not the easiest thing. I know um, I had been talking to people, obviously, about just like all of the, the laws that go into it. And originally, we know King Tut, we have, you know, all the British went in there, they excavated, they took out all of these luscious um, trinkets and beautiful emblems and obviously his mummy. And that was 1912. And now you can't even take anything out of the country with uh, like at all. There's no permits you can even get to do that. It has to stay in Egypt, hence why they just made the Egyptian museum that they just did, which shows the artifacts up for viewing gallery. And then underneath, they have a giant lab, so you can actually start scanning mummies. Because I know recently they did Amenhotep I. His mummy is one of the few that have never been unwrapped. And because there wasn't really a lab to scan his body in, they took a scanner in the back of a pickup truck, drove it to the current, like the original museum. And then they put his mummy in the scanner in the back of the truck in the center of a garden of this museum just to scan him. And it shows how innovative we can get, yet how limited we are in some of our accessibilities. 
I love that meme going around that's like, fun fact, the reason why the Great Pyramids are in Egypt is because they were too heavy to take to the British Museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that one so much because I think we do have the only figurine ever discovered in the Great Pyramid is, is obviously out. I think it's, it might be in the British Museum. And I'm just thinking, of course, you had to take the one thing that you could grab and it wasn't the pyramids themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, ancient Egypt's great. I would say, depending on where you're excavating, you're going to get a different experience. So I excavated in the north, so you have a lot of Roman, Greek influence, and that's a lot more layers to go down with varying degrees of history. But then if you're more in the south part of Egypt, then you have stuff that like my research was based on, which is all the temples and, and monuments, and then you have the Valley of the Kings, Valley of the Queens, like I'm wearing Nefertari earrings right now, and she's in the Valley of the Queens, uh, so she's pretty badass. But there's I was like a say, whole you have things. The cool earrings on, but like the grain, I couldn't tell if they were Egyptian or not. I don't um, know if you can see them. Whoa, that's pretty sick. Yeah. Sorry, interrupted, but no, you're fine. You just you just get a various a varied experience depending on where you are and what you're excavating. But you're always going to find sand. So at least if you like sand, come excavate in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I found at one point I had um I was excavating in Komwaset. I was excavating a, a little temple that had been reused as a house. And I had excavated this giant pot that I could have fit in. It was flipped upside down. Don't know why. Still don't know why. It was put in a wall. Very, very weird. Huh. And I remember excavating that being exhausted. I let the Kufti lift this thing out. And while they were doing that, I was just building little sand castles next to our, our site because I was like well I have extra water that I'm not going to finish up and everyone looked at me like what are you doing I'm like hey if, it, if I bury this and you find it in 10 years it's archaeology it's fine <laughs> that's a good question too I guess uh here it's like 50 years as an artifact like how does that work in Egypt um I think I, mean, I assume you were joking but yeah um it's kind of difficult I guess in Egypt because the original definition would just be oh as long as it's not a culture that is currently existing then it's an artifact but now, as we're having modern conversations of what really denotes an ancient Egyptian and our modern populations, still the existing population of an ancient Egyptian, it's becoming a bit more fuzzy. And I think that's why there's so many antiquities laws now that say you can't excavate, uh, like they limit how many foreign excavators can come in, basically. And that helps to make the excavations less problematic, in a sense, because we do have to excavate, unlike... Some areas we could just do ground penetrating radar. Uh, the locals in Egypt, they tend to need to see to believe, and a lot of their expansion projects for modernization don't really care unless they find something significant. So there's been so many sites that have been bulldozed over or built on top of simply because the cultural significance wasn't proven to them. Hmm. So it's this whole balancing act of is this an artifact? Is it something we should excavate? Well, yeah, we should still preserve it because it's going to be bulldozed if we don't. And it, yeah, it's very stressful and difficult. So as much as Egyptology is a lot of fun, I have to drink a lot of caffeine to stay sane. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's kind of common in archaeology. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you have any specific questions with Egyptology that I could answer for you? Yeah, I guess what time period do you work at? Like, what is your cultural focus? Like, what age range are we looking at for your particular focus in Egyptology? Okay, so that would be third intermediate period. I'm trying to remember the dates on that. Let me Google that. Sometimes I'm just like, yeah, third intermediate period. No one ever questions that because everyone knows what I'm talking about. And then I just forget what that is. So Normally, I would say don't mind, but we actually do get emails being like, um, actually? Yeah. Okay. So third intermediate period. So basically what I look at is, um, yeah, so 1075 BCE to roughly probably like 75 BCE. So like about a thousand year uh, span. But I specialize in what's called like a transition period, an intermediate period. And it shows power dynamic shifting from one case to the next. And in mine, the pharaohs of the time were losing power. And if you look at the Temple of Luxor, Temple of Karnak in Thebes, the priests were actually gaining power. They were taking the power over from the the, the royals at the time of the kings. And it, that's what my graffiti then looks at, is how the priests are using the graffiti to 
uh, land themselves on this landscape to show power. So a lot of the graffiti that I look at would be the priests mimicking royal iconography. And there's one where a priest puts himself as the pharaoh. And in the image that he's mimicking, which is right across from him, it's in the same temple, the image is the pharaoh with his sons lined up. So the priest has him with his sons lined up. And then the pharaoh has him with his daughters. And the priest has done the same thing. And it's this look of taking that power, seizing the opportunity to gain control in the southern part of Egypt, away from pharaonic rule and into more priestly rule, which I guess we can see in modern times too, when churches tended to want to take control and take power. And you have the Pope who then can appoint a king and that whole dynamic. So it's definitely nothing new. That's fascinating. Uh, Is that what you would like to do for your PhD or is that something different? No, it is. It's um, definitely what I would like to do for my PhD. My PhD, I want to look at the political implications of graffiti and how graffiti, as we had previously mentioned, yes, it is yourself imposing your autonomy on a landscape, but it can also be to seize something from that landscape. And so to gain power, to gain control, to gain influence, because everyone that's going to access this temple are already the elite. And so the elite don't really need to be persuaded through graffiti. It's more for the public who are coming to the outsides of the temple or to like a main sector of the temple for ritual purposes and that are going to see these graffiti and they're going to say, oh, that looks just like that. Oh, I know that priest and I'm good for them. Like they have power here and I, I recognize that. And I want to kind of look at how graffiti can be used as propaganda and, and can help gain control in a political, politically uh, tight spot. Excellent. All right. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and we'll be right back with episode 92. Welcome back to segment three of episode 92 of a Life in Rooms podcast. I was born in 92, so that's the only reason I remember that. We're going to talk now about three things. One, I was going to make a joke about fallacies, but we're not going to do that. Um, two, well, I had this. I had this in my head. Hang on. I just didn't want to say that. Yeah, let's talk about video games. There we go. Chris, keep that in. People need to know that I can't speak. Uh, yeah. Um, so Assassin's Creed, Tomb Raider, all those kind of things. Let's nerd out. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess where to start? Because the whole thing is I'm a video game nerd. Love video games. I, it's border, bordering on obsession, but I think that's that's normal. I mean, I have an Assassin's Creed Apple of Eden, so everyone needs oh at least one. Oh, my God. Yeah. At least one? Yeah. It comes with a little stand, too. It's adorable. It's from Assassin's Creed Origins. Yeah. yeah. I just oh, have that's, a bookshelf with all the Halo books, Halo Mega Blocks, and Halo games right behind me that I, I, I block when we record, but it's right down there. <laughs> no, never um, hide with the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I think Black Flag was my favorite of the Assassin's Creeds, but the third one, because you're in Iroquois, was really cool. And I went to a medieval festival, a Renaissance festival, and they had his like tomahawk. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And the blade and stuff too. Anyway, so. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was cool. Oh, Egyptology, palaces, and video games. And that was gonna be a joke. Anyway, it just came back to me. So when it comes to how archaeology is depicted in video games, you have things to say. So let's start with like a classic that, that deals with archaeology. Maybe one of the first video games that talk about it in like the 3D world, talking about like PlayStation, PlayStation 2, Tomb Raider. What are your thoughts? Uh, I used to love Tomb Raider, and I, I didn't actually realize they were games until after the Angelina Jolie movie came out, and my mom was like, yes, there's video games, and I went, how did I not know this? And then I started doing a deep dive on all the video games on my PlayStation, and I don't regret it, <laughs> but it's interesting. They did like their reboots, and they make it known that, yes, she has an archaeology degree, and I went, well, that's nice. She has a degree. She's still not doing archaeology, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's like, it's kind of like grave or temple running, temple robbing, right? From my understanding. Yeah, yeah it's gone. mostly like her wanting to find artifacts and stuff. They, they reboot it where she is looking for a lost city of Yamatai, which is in the Dragon's Triangle. And she gets stranded on an island and has to survive. And then the second one is her looking for another lost city. And the third one is trying to end the apocalypse. And I'm just like, you know, if she just stayed out of a lot of this, it wouldn't happen. Just stop looting tombs. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, all self-inflicted. Like, there's no reason. Like, if you just if you just stop, Laura Croft, then yeah. none of this would happen to you. Go publish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Get your so tenure there's, track. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
So two that you, you had mentioned that I, I hadn't realized that talk about archaeology. One is World of Warcraft, which I played briefly back when it was free to up to level 20. And then I stopped because I wasn't paying for that. And then Sims 4. So how is archaeology depicted in both of those games? So it's interesting. Archaeology was introduced into World of Warcraft with their Cataclysm expansion. And basically, it is a secondary skill that you can get. And what will happen is if you're an archaeologist in the game, you get four different places on your map that you have to go look at. And they usually have like four different cultural groups. And then you go there and you have to survey the land and you'll find little remnants of things that will give you more backstory and lore of Azeroth. And I thought that was kind of cute. And I, th- I did make a note. So which one was it? Oh, yes. The Lore Walkers. So there's Mists of Pandaria, which is the panda expansion, if anyone who's like knows World of Warcraft. Because yes, you can play as a panda now. Um, but they have things called Lore Walkers, and they obviously know the, the history and the lore. And you can befriend them, and it gives you perks in archaeology. But it's very much still that like treasure hunting aspect in my regard, where you're still going to different places, and you're still just looking for little tidbits. But at least they have it in a sense where there's an excavation site and there's a survey that is done. Whereas the Sims, the Sims has you actually like explore temples and you're finding little little artifacts and you can bring them back to your own house and put them in your cabinet of curiosities. So the two of them oh, no. are still, they're vastly different, but they all play on that idea of exploration and I'm going to keep everything I find and it's great. I love how... In World of Warcraft, archaeology is a secondary skill, and it's yeah. so sad, but also I think accurate with how many people who have archaeology degrees but actually go into something yeah. else. So, <laughs> so, about that. that is so true. It's like, oh, well, okay, sweet. Yeah, 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 my we'll first class that. is a ranger, but I also do archaeology on the side. It's like, <laughs> all right, yeah, okay. Yeah, like I'm a rogue archaeologist. That sounds accurate. In Zelda, um, since like the games always have like deep antiquity and like, you know, there's like previous incarnations of Zelda and they're like the different like, you know, kingdoms and stuff. There's always like an, a Goron archaeologist, like one of the graces in the game. And he's always like looking for something. It's a quest to like help him. Uh, I think he was in the Wind Waker and in the most recent one as well. And I think Twilight Princess. So that's a thing. And then Carlton and I played uh, Jedi Fallen Order last year, two years ago. And that was like a game in between episode two and ep- or episode three and episode four. So like right after the clone army purge. Anyway, so there's like shrines to clone troopers all over the place. And like part of the game was looking at like glyphs, like, uh, you know, to find perks and like upgrade your tier, which I thought was really cool. So like inserted that, but he wasn't an archaeologist. It was just like deep Star Wars oh. nerdy lore. Yeah. Yeah, I know they also do it in Dragon Age Inquisition. You actually run into a archaeologist or a scholar who's doing a survey in the land that you're at, and you have to help them find something as well. So I think a lot of games, they use it as almost a quest giver type situation. They are your dungeon master, and they're giving you a quest, but they're also an archaeologist. I'm like, okay, I like it. (laughs) Awesome. I think there's some other games with archaeologists. I can't off the top of my head remember. I I guess um, there's that movie coming out about one of them, right? Oh, um, the Uncharted series with Nathan Drake. Yeah. Yeah. And he's oh, more of a treasure hunter. <laughs> oh, okay. I never played yeah. them. I just knew it looked kind of cool. It, I mean, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm Xbox, so I never had access to the PlayStation PlayStation games. Because, like, once again, going back to Halo, Halo only comes out on Xbox. So that's where my brand loyalty lies. <laughs> I, yeah. I like to play too many games, so I have both. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love both of them too, but I have an Xbox. Now I'm PC Master Race, so that's good. Yep, 100%. And, and a Switch. I like Switches. Oh, there you go. So one of the franchises that deals with archaeology the most is definitely Assassin's Creed. And I wish they would stop making the games at this point because it's just kind of becoming ridiculous how many come out. But it goes everywhere from... What the first one starts in the Crusades, then you go to the Renaissance, Revolutionary War, Black Flag, and they're like, all right, let's go back to Odyssey and Egypt and Greece. So what is your perspective on, especially you being an Egyptologist and Assassin's Creed Origins, how do they represent ancient Egyptian culture in those games? It's really interesting because Assassin's Creed Origins takes place during the, the Ptolemaic periods so of Cleopatra time. So in the time that it's depicting, a lot of the sites that we think of when we think of ancient Egypt, like the pyramids, the Sphinx, 
Luxor Temple, things like that, they're already in ruin during the game. So in one aspect, it's great because you can come in and you can feel like you traveled to Egypt currently and you're seeing these sites for yourself. But then it's also interesting because you're, you are getting this uh, different perspective, which is unexpected, where the people in the game also think ancient Egypt is ancient and it is like mythical and magical. And you go through the entire game playing as a Magi, who is mostly like a king's guard, I guess is the best way that I could explain it. And it's his journey through trying to avenge the death of his son, all while you then have like your Apple of Eden backstory, the, the people who came before type of situations. And you find, you find Cleopatra, you find her brother Ptolemy, and then you also meet Caesar, which is interesting because at the end of the game, one of their other characters is the first person to do the stabby stab with Caesar. And I was like, oh my gosh, what? Like, I, I understand they need to make a plot, but I, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So that person that did the stabby stab, like Brutus? It, it was, you would think, you would think it would be Etu Brutus, but like, it wasn't. It was a character, so you play as Bayek of Siwa, and then you have his wife, Aya, and she is the one that you actually play as and in the end of the game. And she is the one that does the stabby stab at the end as an assassin because the whole game is centered around the birth of uh, Assassin's Creed. So they become the Brotherhood, the Hidden Ones, basically. They they establish the Hidden Ones to help this whole dynamic with Cleopatra and everything. And then when they feel betrayed by Cleopatra, then they go off and they kill Caesar. And they basically put Cleopatra in a position where if you betray the Egyptian people again, like that's it for you. And that's the whole theory as to then why she... Just, you know, mysteriously died. Was, was it actually the hidden ones? Was it the Brotherhood? Was it the assassins? Got you. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you, you being a big gamer yourself and kind of on this topic, in your experience, what franchise or game has represented archaeology most accurately, in your opinion? I mean, Assassin's Creed, as much as it can get very fanciful, one thing I'll say is I really like the newer games that have come out because they do discovery mode and they actually work with professionals in archaeology, in history, in museums. And you can actually then go around to the sites that are in the game and you have a guided tour. They'll tell you about things. They'll tell you about the artifacts that inspired the art for the game. So let's say you're going through the Great Pyramids, for example. They will actually show you, oh, here's like the inspiration we took off of. Like You can find this in this museum. And oh, this is why we painted it this color, because this article from the scholar says that it was this color. And I really appreciate that. So as much as it might not be the most accurate I'm excavating in a video game, it more so is a great resource for people who want to physically be a part of history and then get the sources to go do more like reading for themselves. Excellent. Have you ever played Archaeology X on Steam? I have not, but I have wanted to. It's horrible. I is can't it? stand that game. Oh, That's goodness. the only game I think on our YouTube channel for Life and Ruins that there's a they're like a let's play and it's me trying to understand Archaeology X and it mostly 30 minutes of me trying to figure out like what I'm doing because there's no tutorial and it is just not intuitive. Yeah, I, I'd suggest give it a give it a try sometime and let me know how <laughs> you feel about that one. Get very but, frustrated uh, with it. It's fine. It was it was different. Excellent. Well, that's good stuff. Which, uh, which game is your favorite in general? Like, which one do you actually like playing most? Ooh, um, well, I don't like Valhalla. I'm still trying to get through that. I just don't like it. They have Odyssey, which was great for the quests. I just liked going on multiple quests and riding in a boat. Origins, I liked translating the hieroglyphs that are present because the programmers of the game actually tried their best to translate Assassin's Creed doctrine into the temple. So you actually have on their poster, there's a bit where you know how it's like, what is it? Everything is, I wrote it down. Yeah. They, there's an Assassin's Creed doctrine that says nothing is true. Everything is permitted. And they actually wrote in hieroglyphs, mentem akatem samun. And it basically means nothing is right or correct. Everything is certain or probable. And I was like, okay, I appreciate that. And so as far as like the, the new three ones, uh, I think it's a tie between Origins and Odyssey. But for the traditional ones, I mean, 
I, I love the first game. I love Black Flag. I think those are like my, my two big ones. I really liked Unity just because I like the co-op aspect. Like I know oh, it wasn't yeah, that, that was big fun. of a game and it just came out on that new generation. But like I that was the only Assassin's Creed game I think I've completed. Really? I usually, yeah, I'm not growing up. My brother was huge in Assassin's Creed and I was bigger into Mass Effect. And we kind of what he plays, I don't play and what I play, you know, so but Unity was the only one where I was like, I'm going to finish this. And Black Flag, I stopped because I went through a breakup and my girl, girlfriend at the time took Black Flag with her. So oh, I didn't no. have access to it. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm done with this. And I just haven't had the chance to because uh, I know it's going to be a commitment if I re-download that game. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. I need to finish I mean, a PhD. Yeah, the new Assassin's Creed games. I think I have like 200 and something <laughs> hours sunk into Valhalla. And I don't even like Valhalla, but we're going through it because I'm a completionist. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, wow. I definitely 100%ed the first game or very close to it. And then what was the second? The Italian one did that one. The third, loved the third one. And then Black Flag. I had always said to myself, like, I want a pirate Grand Theft Auto. And then that person at Assassin's Creed Ubisoft <laughs> was like, got you and made that. And it was awesome. Um, I haven't played since. Uh, what was the one after that? It was Black Unity. Flag. Was it Unity? Yeah, I didn't play Unity or anything after that, but I watched people play the Egyptian one, and that looked awesome. Yeah, Egyptian one's good. Um, if you like the the sailing aspect of Black Flag, I would suggest going to Odyssey, which is the next one after the Egyptian that's one. That's Greek, right? Because you actually get a boat, and you get a flamethrower at one point for your boat, and that's fun. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Greek's fire, all right. That, yeah, it's pretty sick. So, And then lastly, we do want to kind of wrap up with um, your work for Safe Cultural Heritage Group, which is how I met you because you were my interviewer for SCHG. So what is SCHG about and what do you do for them? Um, So we have Safe Cultural Heritage Group and basically it's bringing professionals and cultural heritage to media so that people can access more professionals more easily. So obviously people don't get to meet Egyptologists every day or, you know, Plains archaeologists every day. And it's a great way for us to introduce the public to other people. So for the show that I met you on, Weekend Talk, which is what I host, we have professionals that are either in TV production, in museums, they're archaeologists, or even we actually had someone on the show recently who was an archaeologist and no longer is an archaeologist. And we talk about the economic impact of continuing archaeology and usually people ask, oh, what's the process of getting into archaeology? What should I do? And that interview was definitely, well, if you are an archaeologist, you want to actually leave archaeology. What does that process look like? And and what can you do still with your degree set, which is a great conversation to have. And that's what Save Cultural Heritage Group is all about. It's about preserving our culture and our history through real life people in their, their lives, both inside and outside academia, and just talking about them and learning with them what it means to be in cultural heritage and what it looks like moving forward. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Carlton, I didn't hear your episode on it that. It hasn't come out yet. That. It hasn't come out oh, yet. Oh, okay. I remember you saying you did that. I, but. I did one with the opening of the weekend talk yeah. a while ago when I was with, it was really weird because there's like little old me and then the person who I was being interviewed with, she's a professor she was on time team and like i was vast vastly out of my uh league being like there with karen i was just like i have like no one is here for me everyone is clearly here for karen so i just like tried my best and it was uh but it was fun and then yeah i had the 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 follow-up with uh with Megan, which was really fun. And I felt bad because you, it was late for you and early for me, kind of like it is now. And you're like, how are you doing this morning? And I was just waking up. I'm like, (laughs) but it was an excellent, excellent episode. Yeah. So that's awesome. So how often do you work with them? Like what's your work schedule with SCHG? So we aim to put out a new episode bi-weekly. So every, every fortnight you're going to get a new episode, but we have currently been trying to record as much as possible. So it always depends on the guests availability and because I do work outside of that as well it also determines my availability so I would say if I had to average it out it was probably one recording a week every month it's not that difficult but I think it's the research I put into each episode because I want to make each episode has like the entertainment segment like Carlton knows and I, I basically have a game where you have to look at something and you have to guess something about it and having to research all of those things so for Carlton we did 
Native American heritage sites. And I had to not only find the ones I want to talk about, but then I wanted to know all the history about them so that we could have a conversation and share that with our guests. And I think that's what takes up most of my time. So uh, maybe maybe like a two-day thing every week. So it's not terrible, but it's worth it. Yeah. All right. Excellent. So it's been awesome having you on. I learned a lot. This was really fun. We'll definitely have you back on in the future. Before we end the show, Megan, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, videos, or, or et cetera, that you would recommend for anyone interested in, you know, Mesoamerica, South American, and Egyptology or video so I, games. Let's throw oh that in there. Goodness. Well, play, play Assassin's Creed Origins and look at the, uh, not the graffiti, the hieroglyphs, because I think they're great. So do that. Have fun with that. Um, as far as books, now, I, I have a lot of my recommendations are for Egyptology, but I would say if you want to look at Mesoamerica, just Google Dr. Jaime Awe, J-A-I-M-E, Awe is A-W-E, Jaime Awe. Uh, you're going to get a lot of great stuff. You can also Google B-V-A-R, which is the Belize Valley Archaeological Reconnaissance Project. And the two of them, you'll get a lot of information if you want to learn more about Mesoamerica. As far as ancient Egyptian things go, I recommend The Anatomy of a Civilization by Barry Kemp. That's really good. If you want to learn how to read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, because everyone does, uh, I recommend two books. One of them was actually my professor. So How to Read Egyptian Hieroglyphs by Mark Collier and Bill Manley. That's great. And then Bill Manley also did another book called Egyptian Hieroglyphs for Complete Beginners, which is a lot of fun. I went back through it during lockdown in my garden. I was just like doodling different things. It's very easy to understand and go through. And you might even learn language terms you didn't realize existed. So it helps you with your your modern language, your current language, which is great. And then as far as graffiti goes, I know a lot of people are always interested in ancient graffiti and how that translates to modern graffiti. So you can look at scribbling through history, graffiti, places, and people from antiquity to modernity. And that is by a long list of contributors that you have, uh, Chloe Ragazzoli, Amir, uh, what is it? Amir Harman, I've never met her. I, I, I apologize. We have Sal, Dr. Salvador, Dr. Frude. And I know there's a few others, but basically you, you go through this book and each writer has talked about different graffiti in different time periods, some in modern, some in ancient Egypt. Dr. Frude does ancient Egypt. You'll get a nice little grasp on that. And I think those are some good places to start. And um, there's obviously, I think we're going to put more in the description for this. So go check that out. Excellent. 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 And where can our listeners find you on social media and or like academic stuff or publications? So I am 100% on Instagram almost all the time. It's, again, okay. probably should kick that habit, but here we are. Um, so you can find me at Egyptian underscore Rose. And then for Save Cultural Heritage Group, if you just type in S-C-H-G-P-K into Instagram, will come up. We also have the YouTube show Weekend Talk. Again, if you just put into YouTube Save Cultural Heritage Group, it will come up. Just look for the playlist for Weekend Talk and you'll find me. And then okay. I also am a writer for, we talked about Menem Archaeology. And so we're, we just started the Instagram for that. So M-E-N. AM archaeology and you'll see like we just did a seven ancient wonders of the world posts you can go on there and Sweet. find out some more things because i don't think people realize there are ancient wonders of the world and um it's, it's fun to kind of realize that the only one i think now is the great pyramids of giza were both in ancient the ancient list and in the modern list so it's really fun to see hmm. huh. excellent i would ask what the last one is but i'll make sure people go see the post to find out yeah We'll have all that in the episode description below. And for everyone that also loves video games like Megan and ourselves, uh, Life and Ruins has a Discord server, and I'm putting the link to that in the description below. Megan's going to be joining it, and you can find a lot of our previous guests on it, as well as me, David, and Connor often on there gaming out. So come join our Discord, come chat with us, and then come play some games with us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so thank you for joining us today, Megan. If given the chance, would you choose to live a life in ruins in Egypt? I couldn't imagine my life any differently. So, of course. Good. Excellent. I think that is probably, we, I need to take an Excel sheet and figure out what the most common answer is. I think that's it. I think Eric Robinson um, was the only one that said no. <laughs> <laughs> he just, yeah, he was like, no. 
And so, um, excellent. Well, we just interviewed uh, Megan uh, Kummerick. You can find Megan on Instagram at Egyptian Rose, as well as her various organizations that she's affiliated with. You'll find all the links for their social media and websites in the episode description, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Real quick, guys, uh, we don't have a joke because Connor's not here. Before we send off our guest, I have a joke, actually, Ooh, myself. Okay. Our joke is that uh, we don't have enough reviews on our podcast uh, on Apple. So if you guys could do that, I will actually, if you do it, I will send you an ethno sticker and two ruin stickers uh, just to see if anyone actually bites at this. And if everyone does this now, like, I guess I got to send them all, but do it. How are you going to find their um, contact info based on an Apple review? Uh, <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> uh, I guess just DM us and DM us. Don't just DM me. Anyway, yeah, Meg, it's been great having you. Yeah, uh, Carlton, you know, anything else to say? Yeah. So, like as David said, please be sure to rate the podcast to provide us with any feedback, whichever podcasting platform you uh, are using to listen to the show. Megan, it has been absolutely phenomenal to have you on. This has been absolutely great. We'll have you on again in the future, hopefully sometime soon. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.